Welcome to the DevOps Diversity Podcast, the all-inclusive place to talk people, process, and technology for enterprise transformation and modernization. I'm your host, Connor Dellenbank. Today's episode is brought to you by Strategio. Strategio is dedicated to increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion for underrepresented and underserved groups within enterprise IT. Strategio sources STEM graduates from universities across North America, invests in paid training and relocation, trains in skills including cloud and DevOps, site reliability engineering, full stack development, cybersecurity engineering, and data science, and then delivers these highly trained technologists to enterprise organizations on a one to two year contract to hire program. If you would like to find out more about the Strategio program, please go to strategio.tech. And today I'm here with Natalie Nixon, PhD, a creativity strategist, global keynote speaker, and author of the award-winning The Creativity Leap. As president of Figure Eight Thinking, Natalie advises leaders on transformation by applying wonder and rigor to amplify growth and business value. Some of her clients have included Comcast, Citrix, VaynerMedia, and Bloomberg. Natalie has lived in Germany, Brazil, Portugal, Israel, and Sri Lanka, and is proficient in Portuguese and Spanish. She's a member of the Forbes Coaches, Coaches Council, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and is certified as a strategist practitioner by the Institute for the Future. When she's not dancing up a storm in hip-hop class, Natalie is fine-tuning her foxtrot, salsa, and tango on the ballroom floor. She lives in her hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with her husband, John Nixon, and is the proud stepmother of Sydney. Natalie, how are you today? Hi, I'm doing great, Connor. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. So we uh, we initially spoke, uh, and I, I mentioned to you in our, one of our first discussions where I had actually read your book this year. And so for me to host you on on the show and to be able to uh, to share some of your thoughts and your knowledge with uh, with our listeners is very exciting. Well, thank you for reading the book. I'm I, I'm always happy to hear that. I always love getting feedback and understanding what parts of the book resonated with people. So thanks for checking it out. No, for sure. And uh, yeah, it's because I, I was on this real um, learning phase, the part like most of this year, to be honest with you, when it comes to uh, like launching a business and, and trying to, to take that step into being a founder and a CEO, uh, which for me is, is my first time doing that. So I really wanted to look outside of the box, ranging from how, you know, different startup style uh, books through to the, the hard thing about hard things, Ben Horowitz. And I was like, I also need creativity. And I also yes. want to make sure that I'm listening to people from every different background, every environment, every industry, and then finding out what I can get from their knowledge as well. And that was what was really powerful when reading your book, actually. Well, thank you. I, I think that um, the best startup leaders are incredibly creative. And uh, as you know, from having listened to read The Creativity Leap, you know that not only do I define creativity as our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems, but I also talk about something called the three eyes, which are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. I know we'll get to that later, but to be honest with you, the intuition piece was something I decided was really important to incorporate into the way we thought about creativity, into the way we intentionally practice creativity. After there was a chapter in my, career where I was working a lot with startup leaders and I would observe 
hearing them say things like when they would share their origin story, they would say things like something told me not to do the deal or something told me to work with her versus him. And that pattern of language kept coming up. And I thought, well, what is that something? I think it's intuition and intuition as well as creativity. It's not something that we talk about or incorporate into MBA programs, medical school, law school, and yet, you know, creativity is core to innovation. And we, we, we say, trust your gut or should I trust my gut or not? We're talking about intuition here, aren't we? And yes. that, that applies in so many levels where if we could be making key business decisions or it could be, well, another key business decision is, is who you hire, especially in an early stage of a company. I felt like I should have gone with that or I decided not to because my gut told me not to. So I guess we'll we'll go from from the beginning with that wonder and rigor piece first. Talk to me about the how you have applied design thinking, wonder and rigor, and been able to leverage that to, uh, I guess, share knowledge or educate or trigger certain thinking with everyone from executives, you know, through to people in fresh startups as well. Yes, well, you know, my background is pretty loopy. I have a background in anthropology and fashion. And I really got grounded in design thinking when I became a professor. I was a professor for 16 years and the first 10 years I taught the business of fashion. The last six years I created and launched a strategic design MBA program. And the whole way I got into strategic design, creative strategy, design thinking was because I had naively decided to earn a PhD while working full time. And my PhD is in this field called design management. And it was studying design management, improvisational organizations, systems design, service design, that really exposed me to this field of design thinking. And what I loved about that field is that it's incredibly hybrid. It's, it values uh, being multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary, which is my jam. That's right. That's that's my speed and the way I like I like to connect the dots quite a bit. And so, as it turns out, having that tool tool in my toolkit, having design thinking in my toolkit, really segued very nicely into my work as a creativity strategist. So now, in my work at Figure Eight Thinking. I advise leaders on transformation, and I do that through the lens of creativity and foresight, and more specifically through the lens of wonder and rigor to help them make better business decisions. And design thinking, because it is a problem-solving process that starts with empathy, being hyper-obsessed with the people who are consuming our products, our services, our goods, and valuing prototyping, lateral thinking, it all synchronizes really well in my work as a creativity strategist. It, it does make total sense when talking with you now, and also when I was initially uh, reading your book, to the, the fact that creativity and coming from uh, fashion and and a, a non-traditional background into uh, corporate, the corporate world, I, I would probably say, it makes sense when now you're saying it that empathy, creativity, wonder, rigor, why they, they these things apply so much. Because I, I remember prior to hearing what you were talking about, I, I was thinking to myself, 
I'm one of those traditional people that says, well, I'm just like the business type or I'm the commercial type, right? I'm not creative. I would say that about myself. And then I'm like, wait, I'm literally building a company and I have to think every day. I have to be creative every day. And I've had further discussions with other founders, other entrepreneurs since hearing and reading your book. And I'm like, wait, we're all super creative. I'm not very good at painting, for example. I'm not very good with a pencil and drawing, but I am good at thinking outside of the box and to have a vision and a strategy. And so that's really, for me, what got me excited. I was like, we all need to learn this. And especially if we're talking about enterprise transformation, modernization, adapting for the times of like today and for tomorrow, the way the whole world works now, we need to be creative. And so by sparking that wonder and rigor that you talk about, that's like really getting me going as well. Absolutely. I'm happy to hear that. Um, you know, one of the goals in from the book, The Creativity Leap and in my work is that we stop conflating creativity with art only or the way sometimes I like to say it is that we have to stop ghettoizing creativity in the arts. What happens is that artists happen to be magnificent at manifesting the ambiguity of the creative process. They are incredibly intentional about carving out time and space for both the wonder and the rigor. You know, we run, we run into a lot of problems and we overly simplify creativity when we only think about creativity as the wonder dimension, right? And then we get stuck in thinking that creativity is this woo-woo, frilly add-on, an addendum to the, you know, air quotes, important stuff, important work. And that's when we run into uh, these environments sometimes in companies where we hear things like, oh, I'm not creative because I can't fill in the blank, sing, paint, dance, uh, draw, act, etc. right? Or we'll hear things like, um, uh, the creatives will take care of that later, like it's lipstick on a pig, right? And the creatives, air quotes, will be people who work in branding or in the design function, right? But, you know, my view, my perspective is that uh, to be human is to be hardwired to be creative, that we are all born incredibly creative. Unfortunately, it's our educational system which kind of uh, saps us dry of our creativity. Why? I think it's because in traditional formats of education, we err on the side of solutions instead of process. You know, I always remind people who want to go into business rather than studying management or accounting or, or, or even strategy, uh, study philosophy, study languages, study biology, study uh, anthropology, because the best businesses are led by people who know how to fall in love with people's problems. You don't go into business uh, to sell your shiny trinket, especially if no one really wants your shiny trinket. You go into business to identify a commercially viable opportunity to solve a problem in the marketplace. And the reason why it's so important, in my view, to be grounded in whatever interests you, if it's dance, if it's philosophy, if it's painting, if it's uh, medicine, uh, get into that, really dive into it because that will equip you with a point of view. And if you've read my book, The Creativity Leap, you know how important I think it is to, as I say, have a friggin' point of view. 
That's it. That's, this is this is awesome because some of the other discussions I've had in, in recent episodes talk about um, the, the the way that we can actually find during that interview process when hiring, especially looking at hiring people from non-traditional backgrounds in tech or fi- hi- fi- hiring STEM graduates that don't have the experience yet. We try and share. Don't don't think that you just have to tell us the tools and technologies you use. That would be like an artist saying, "I um I just do use a paintbrush," but never telling you about the painting, That's right? right? Or the or what inspired. More importantly, this is actually pretty good. So you've got the creativity coming out of me now. <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> it just happens naturally. So it's like talking about the painting. But what inspired you to paint the painting in the first place? And it's the same as you you created a great application or technology product or service. You're telling me about Java and Python, which is like, I get, you know, yes, we can use that to do the interview. We can share that and do some pair programming. But what's really important is why you were inspired to do what you did for your um, your your previous projects that got you to this point. And that's exactly that's right. what, yeah, that's exactly the kind of point that you're hitting at there as well, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Why does this matter to you? What's the story you're trying to tell? What's the impact you think it will it will make? You know, just just not getting not falling in love with the tools, but trying to understand how they are a means to what end because of this tool because of this perspective. I distinguish myself in XYZ way because of this perspective, because of this tool, I'm able to add value in these distinctive ways. And that that's the important uh dot connection we have to complete yeah for sure and and it, it applies this is what's interesting here this applies across any industry you know finance yes. legal uh tech it, the the list of areas it can be applied goes on and on and it really what it stimulates for me is just that again that thought process of we need to be looking outside of the box we need to look at non-traditional backgrounds because they're really the, the folks in our teams if we can hire people that have not done it the exact same way as us, it, we're on the DevOps Diversity podcast. And so sometimes that refers to gender, sexual orientation. Sometimes it refers to race or ethnicity. But what I always try to share is diversity of thought is so important. Having teams that have this angle of, you know, there's a cross-functional angle. They all understand different problems and they can say, well, from my perspective, it's totally different from what you're saying. And then you can, you can kind of walk through that and you'll find a solution to your, you'll solve problems, but you might solve them quicker on a totally different way. And again, if you're thinking about business as a, a competition against others, as well as improving on what you're doing, you're able to <laughs> get to go further ahead outside of the box as well. Well, speaking of box, you know, I really like to, to always remind people of a wonderful expression from the American dancer choreographer, Twyla Tharp, she wrote a great, she's written several great books. One of her great books is, is called um, The Creative Habit. And she reminds us that before you can think out of the box, you have to start with the box. And what she means by that, you know, people constantly throwing on the ceremony, think out of the box, think out of the box. Well, what's the structure? What's the framing? You know, creativity loves constraints. Creativity loves constraints on t- with time, constraints because of lack of funds and financing, constraints because of lack of the right, the exact perfect people talent. It actually helps you when you know the boundaries, you are better able to push against them and rebound. Um, um, and when it comes to hiring, um, make sure you hire people who ask very different questions from you. You don't want to hire people who ask the same sorts of questions that you ask. Questions are inputs into a system. 
And so if we keep asking the same sorts of questions, then we'll keep getting the same output. If we keep, if we keep hiring people who have the same training as us, went to the same types of schools, came from the same uh, part of the country or the city or the world, we're gonna have the same inputs into a system. If we're trying to figure out a new way of thinking about the system, a new system, we've gotta have different inputs. And the gentleman named Jerry Hirschberg, um, he used to be the head of design for Nissan, the automotive company. He thought of a term which I love called creative abrasion, which speaks to the point you made, Connor, about a thought diversity, cognitive diversity. And he would insist that on every design challenge problem, that his team was working on, they would have people from manufacturing and sales and finance and HR because he wanted to create that friction, that abrasion that results when we have to work with people who think totally different from us. And most of us hate to collaborate because like, oh my gosh, I could do this so much faster by myself. But here's the thing, there's an African proverb, which is um, alone faster together further right? We want to go further. And there's an amazing learning curve that happens when we work from, with people who are different from us, who have different training, different skills, different ways of thinking about a challenge. And so, yeah, make sure that you surround yourself with people who think a little differently from you, have different training. Um, it will force you to translate a lot of your jargon. It will challenge you about the ways that you've been thinking about things. Sometimes you'll be more affirmed of the way you think about things and other times you'll realize, huh, maybe this doesn't make sense anymore. This is actually a much more interesting way to go about doing it. So that's why it's so important. Exactly. It doesn't mean that you have to uh, just take it and run with it every single time. That's, that's right. the choice we all have, isn't it? We're able to say, well, this actually doesn't work for me, but I've listened to it. I've tried it. I've taken it on board uh, and brought some empathy to it. So now, now is a time, I guess, speaking of empathy and many other topics, but we're in this digital adoption phase in society that we really are stepping into the future of work. And it might sound funny to some people because it's like, well, we already had digital. It's been around for a long time. And some people are like, what, does, what are we talking about when we say digital? I, I'm really referring to the fact that we really can truly work from anywhere at scale now. Large companies doing it. It's being more accepted. We have families around us, pets around us. Um, and we have to learn as companies to adopt to how that works. We have to bring creative features to our companies. We have to innovate and we have to also either disrupt or be disrupted during this era. So what are some of the ways that you're going about creating some business value to the, because you work with a, lot, a number of, of companies across the country and globally that are also trying to go through the same period. What's happening right now? What are you seeing and how are you approaching those kind of problems? Um, so you're absolutely right in the, the picture you painted that people are having what I call um, a new reality that consists of blurred boundaries. The boundaries of blurred between work and home, home and work, learning and work, uh, learning and play, uh, work and play. And rather than fight against that, let's embrace it. Um, the next normal is one where people really welcome the options and the opportunity to be able to have better access to their children and, and a bit more flexibility in their time, as well as having a work culture that says, as long as you get the work done, for good. However you, you know, I'm not going to micromanage you, however you want to 
uh, use your time, you understand the deliverable, you understand the quality that we're expecting, and you know, you have different check ins. So a lot of what I'm seeing working through with my clients in an advisory role is helping them to figure out and define new systems, new processes that aren't totally a, a 180 degree shift away from from their own culture. But what are small tweaks? that we can start to make. And that's really important distinction to understand. Sometimes I think what terrifies people about change that we're not understanding, especially as leaders, when we're so excited about the opportunities of change, a lot of people are frozen in their tracks when it comes to change because they are terrified of the loss that they are assuming is going to happen. So let's put that on the table. Let's do what I call a loss audit right and let's understand what really could be at stake how true is that how, how far away from the truth is that and i think sometimes because people fundamentally want to be seen and heard in any work environment that's whether you're a kindergartner <laughs> right or you are a high schooler or you are feeling like a cog in the wheel in, in a corporate environment you want to be seen and heard so giving people the tools to have those conversations and to do that is a lot of the work that I do and to get more excited and inspired about all that can come with this new way of working. There's a slide that I often show in my keynotes um, where it, it, you know you have the big blue marble of the earth and you know spinning in the universe and um, I, you know I, I, I pose this statement that in a world where we now know that we can work from anywhere, we can learn from anywhere. The organizations and the leaders that work at the intersection of the following three things will be the ones that flourish. And those three things are technology, productivity, and meaningful human experience. The challenge is that most organizations have one or two of those down, and they probably have the productivity and the tech down, maybe one more than the other. Very few have figured out in this digital interface also how to promote meaningful human experience. And I'm biased, but I believe that creativity is the binder between all three of those. It's creativity that helps us to have a nice feedback loop between being super productive, really optimizing technology, and having meaningful human experience. So that's the opportunity that I really align my clients with in my strategic advisory work. That's fantastic. So I, I'm really, yeah, I like the way we've, we've gone to the, the tech, the productivity, and then the meaningful, hu meaningful human experience here. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, how do we create that meaning? I think all leaders right now are thinking, how do we continue to do that? It maybe used to be some uh, activity that we would do in an office or some kind of event or conference we would go to. And I think this is one of the things you've mentioned in the past where it's like we don't just reserve time for creativity because creativity needs to be a part of what we do naturally. That's right. Right. So it's uh, how do we in in because we have such rigid time i guess yeah we've become rigid in a sense because it's like we have set times for calls we have video calls or we have uh, we can talk back and forth on uh, ims internally or instant messages internally so how do people try and improve that meaningful human experience in some of the ways you've seen well it's about creating opportunities for the serendipity 
and for that stickiness to happen. So the serendipity and the stickiness used to happen around the water cooler, it used to happen um, at group lunches, on your way to take a bathroom break. And now we don't have that. So part of it is, yes, there are the lot, those really intensive structured times of meeting, meeting, meetings after meeting after meeting, but there's also an opportunity to really incentivize the downtime to, and to incentivize new modes of communication. So it doesn't always have to be a video. It can, it can also be an old fashioned phone call. Um, it also can be the way that if it is an, an online meeting, it's the way the online meeting is structured so that we integrate play a bit more into it. So for example, if there is a question prompt, even for a really serious topic call or meeting where you where you're drawing out a little bit more of the, the personality of people, you, 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 you understand a little bit more about um, how they grew up, um, that all of a sudden generates levity, it, it generates uh, giggles, it generates smiles, and that is that human interface. Um, so it's really, like you said, it's not about, okay, now it's time to be creative, but it's interweaving it throughout. It's switching up um, what can start to be very rigid schedules and rigidity is different from rigor, right? Rigidity is about insisting that we're gonna continue down this, this line of, of thinking on this, launching this product, even though all alarm bells are going off, even though the external environment is showing that things need to shift rigor says that yes we're going to spend our time with the discipline the focus but we're also our contextual i i often liken uh rigor to what a gra a groundhog does i i live in the state of pennsylvania where the groundhog peaks up and you know uh the folklore is that they they give us an idea of how many more days of weeks of winter we have but they take into context the environment, they are contextual. Rigor is contextual, like that groundhog. And then it goes back down, it furrows down, and it continues on about the work. So it's about mixing up the cadence. It's about introducing play. And it's about um, introducing different ways to communicate. So again, so that we mix things up a bit. Um, part, part of what makes things stale in any type of environment is if it becomes rote but in integrating laughter, um, syncopating the rhythm and the cadence of how we meet is super important. Little Phil, right? It's a yes. Punk's Downey Phil. Was yes, <laughs> so every, that's every, right. Every year in, uh, when I was living in New York, um, which was until this last year, I'd been there for five years. And I, uh, myself and all my friends would always be like, what did this, this groundhog say? Because we were like, please don't give us six more weeks of winter. I it know. Always, now Especially I'm like, when you live up north in the United States. That's right, exactly. So I was always like, oh no. Now now I'm like, I don't mind what the groundhog say, it says. I'm in Florida. So it's, <laughs> it's going to be warm, whatever happens at the moment. But exactly. um, so when we talk about uh, changing up, a way I would think about that as well is sometimes if you go like if you're walking your dog or if you're going out to the local store sometimes take a different route than the one you normally take or if you're brushing your teeth like step out of the room and go to a different area because i think what our brains do is we do something over and over again it's very easy to delete that memory and forget that thing even happened if it's too repetitive we just don't like if you ask someone what, what what did you think of or what did you do when you were brushing your teeth five days ago you probably don't remember what you were doing right whereas you might remember serious conversations or things that you were doing at work 
you might remember walking your dog sometimes, but can you really remember that walk you did on Sunday evening? So by changing it up, and the same goes for this process we're talking about now, doing things in a slightly different way, just add, adding a different scenario to the, it could be that that next meeting, like you mentioned, there doesn't have to always be on video. It could be that you are out walking the dog or going to meet somebody else. And you're just having a conversation, just a peaceful walk through the park or, or through the middle of the city. And just the things you're seeing will ignite new creativity and, and new wonder in your thought process, which in turn, again, adds it back to the team or the organization you're working with as well. Well, you know, wonder benefits quite a bit from wandering, <laughs> from uh, get from getting lost intentionally. I, I created a, a card deck called the Wonder Rigor Discovery Deck, and I have in it all sorts of prompts to help people uh, try on new ways of working that require more rigor, to try on new ways of working that require more wonder. And one of the prompts is to intentionally get lost. Uh, don't follow Google Maps on your way to work, um, or in these cases, these days during quarantine, on your way to the store. Try, try a totally different route. Brush your teeth with, uh, if I'm right hand dominate, dominant, um, try, try brushing my teeth with my left hand, right? Um, it, 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 it catalyzes and sparks up a different neural pathway in our brains that alight our brains and help to take the focus off of that frontal uh, neocortex and really starts to uh, rewire those neural pathways. And then the um, limbic brain and the mammalian brain can become a lot more alive, which is actually where the deep inspired um, thinking happens, not in the, in the neocortex. And so some of the some of the folks out there that in their companies would have been um, thinking we have to make people work harder, we have to make them turn up more and more. I, I, I had some experiences where teams I was working with in, in another location were being asked to come online even earlier or work even later to like, basically prove that they were they, it was like the company mindset was well, you're now at home, so you're always available instead of realizing that now you have to actually give people more freedom, more flexibility, more time to think. They're not going to be stimulated by those discussions. Like we said, the water cooler on the way to the bathroom, you're not bumping into each other anymore. So the whole, and then also just people have to deal with multiple things at home. So while working from home can be amazing for work-life balance, emotionally, it might be a different experience for a lot of people. They might have more stress, less space to work in, they might have a less creative space to work in. And so in turn, you've got to find a way as a leader to actually stimulate those thoughts, those feelings for somebody else and make them feel okay if they're happy. So you've got the technology part you've mentioned and you've got the, um, and then you've got the middle part, which you spoke about, which was the productivity. You yes. get people to be productive by making them feel good and passionate about what they're doing. Yes, you actually will boost productivity if you allow people to be human. If you if you encourage that part of them, if you acknowledge uh, how stressful these times are, if you acknowledge that they need a bit more time with their families, that they they should not be on email after six p.m. or you know there's a hiatus, there's a referendum that that that's called out on being on the on the computer between at a certain time, and leaders have to model that, right? Because at the end of the day, let's face it, none of us are going to really trust that it's okay to step back from the laptop 
until we really see that being modeled by leadership that they're not sending us emails at a certain time. And sometimes the pushback I get from clients is like, well, what if the client needs us? Well, it's fascinating what happens when we create boundaries. People tend to adjust. So if you're not available on these two days or Wednesdays, not until 1 p.m., clients find a way to adjust and adapt. And you know what also happens? You come back to your work much more recharged, much more positive and productive, and are able to deliver above and beyond, as opposed to the tremendous amount of burnout that happens when we work people to a grind. You know, Deloitte uh, did a sample study um, at the beginning of 2021 to try to understand the levels of burnout. And they, their sample was about a thousand people who uh, they looked at for, for this survey and they learned that 72% of people, these are primarily Americans, were already burned out, right? And, this, and, and so it's not because people are lazy, it's not because people are working from home and therefore they're not gonna do the work, it's because there's not enough intentional times for the wonder, for the pausing, for the awe. You know, I, I always like to, to remind people, it is impossible to wonder at 80 miles an hour. You have to slow down. You have to pause so that ideas can percolate, so that you can regenerate, so that you can spend the time on that deep dive focus work that the rigor requires. And then you can return to the work at hand. I, I created a corollary expression that um, um, wonder is found in the midst of rigor and rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. So what that means is when I say wonder is found in the midst of rigor, in the midst of any rigorous task or work that you're doing that's not particularly sexy, it feels a bit rote, it's the fundamentals, it's the work that has to be done, requires focus. It's often in that work that you have the aha moments. And the corollary to that is that rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. We can't uh, go into this mode of a work churn, work, 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 rigor, 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 and expect to still innovate. It's not gonna happen. Um, it's not sustainable without wonder. So, so wonder and rigor are copacetic. I, I see that without a doubt in, in my own life and in my own work. It's like if I, I, when I'm in that rigorous moment, I'm thinking of ways to, to act. I'm, I'm like, how do I solve this in a larger scale or, or a, a, a better way? That means it's like I can be I can do more of this and not have to be inefficient about it or so like the innovation and the disruption happens when I'm actually doing a, a very intensive task but I come to it with a specific mindset and if I go into it tired or feeling burnt out or that I haven't actually had the space to really create in my own head I go in that and I just do something that's very repetitive it's not very exciting right whereas you can be in that rigorous moment and then you're like wow, I actually made an amazing solution to something that I didn't know I was going to ever find, but the rigor allowed me to get there through doing Yeah, you get to a much more exponential outcome versus like a tweak. And not to say tweaks aren't good. Sometimes the, the best shifts happen with a tweak. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's the, the rigor and it's the repetition that actually allows 
different areas of your brain to relax so that 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 wondrous idea can emerge you know i find this a lot through when i dance so i um i, I take a, i do a lot of hip-hop dance classes as well as ballroom and i i'm a big advocate of recommending and this isn't even in my my corporate strategic advisory work that people become clumsy students of something outside of work and i only have anecdotal evidence of this working my my anecdotal rationale of why it it's important to become a clumsy student of something outside of work is again when we are clumsy students of something we're not we're not number one at we're not the expert in we get better at the three eyes of inquiry improvisation and intuition you have to get better at asking different and new questions in order to get clarification on what am i doing wrong what am i missing how how come i'm not getting this you have to become much more improvisational because you don't really know what you're doing you have you you're a bit more open to being experimental it's okay um and you are much more attuned to your intuition but in something like let's take ballroom dance if i'm trying to learn um, an intricate aspect of the cha-cha especially if you advance on there are just very mundane seemingly minuscule adjustments i have to make in my body and the the, the way i make a turn the position of my foot how i'm interacting with my partner that in the moment i'm so immersed in it it's all the details it's the minutiae it's the rigor of getting it right and then there's a release that happens when I realize, ah, when it all comes together, right? That's kind of the wonder piece. And I can't really experience consistently the wonder until I've really gone to the mat, to the floor, practiced, rehearsed, done the repetitions, done my, as I call them, the creative reps in order to get to the wonder. But then what's interesting is because I'm not the best one. I have to ask all sorts of questions. I, I take lessons from different teachers. I observe how people who are better than me do things. That is something I take back into my work. So I show up to my work a lot more open and able to ask questions, um, a bit more at ease to improvise, and definitely more trusting into my intuition. Why? Because I've been practicing it as a clumsy student of ballroom dance. So whatever your jam is, whatever you you you're, you want to tinker with, you should go do it because it will up your game in your your regular um, work that you focus on on a daily basis. That's fantastic advice. I, I love the way you're tying in uh, an external creative activity, or really it doesn't have to be a creative per se, we're putting that in a box again, but an activity in general, go out there, try it and be like, go and suck at that thing and then learn and try to improve. Yeah. We're using that, you're going to get the right mindset that's going to open you up and it's going to bring you in a refreshed uh, state of mind to what you're going to do next. I think that's fantastic. It's very important. It could be chess. It could be making puzzles. It could be learning to cook. It could be fixing a car, it could be learning a new language. All of those, whenever we are in clumsy student mode, it's amplifying the three eyes of inquiry, improvisation, intuition. And that that's only good stuff happens from that. It's like 
we build this uh, guard around ourselves. I suppose the ego might be part of it. And so in our work, we expect, we, we're like, well, we are paid for this and we're supposed to have experience and we're supposed to be good. And that's a lot of the time why, especially leaders as well, struggle to kind of admit their failures or to, to pivot with times because they're, they're sometimes afraid to say, well, I actually didn't know this or what I thought I knew wasn't that good. Whereas you go and try something new. You put yourself in a scenario where you do suck at something. It's very, it's like, hey, I, I'm not supposed to be good at this. It's fine. I wasn't the good one anyway. But if you can bring that ability to be open and to be, I guess, insecure or, or to, to, to allow yourself to not be the, the best at something, go to that scenario. It's perfect when you bring it back to work as well. You know, I think one of the reasons why it's easier, easier for us to default to art and artists when we think about creativity is that artists, they really are just excellent at manifesting, sorry, at modeling great behaviors as, as it relates to creativity. So for example, most artists, it's all about the process. They're totally fine saying like, I don't know what's gonna happen. I'm gonna try it. Like, I don't know, this is, this is an idea I have. It's totally experimental. Um, we're going to see what happens. They're totally open to collaborating with others. You know, in jazz music, there's really no such thing as a mistake. When you, it's all about the build. It's, 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 of course you're going to make a mistake. My dance teacher, my ballroom dance teacher tells me, reminds me of that all the time. You're going to make mistakes. This, how do you rebound from it? How do you build from it? Like what an amazing life lesson, right? So what, what we see artists do, that what the, the behaviors they model about falling in love with the process, about uh, being okay with, with saying I don't know, and they look back at you like why why would why would you think I would know like I don't know I'm gonna try it let's see whether it's music or painting or dance or photography or sculpture whatever it is, but here's the thing the best engineers the best scientists the best entrepreneurs the best plumbers the best farmers are incredibly creative because the best ones in all those fields. They're totally open to that toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems and being exploratory and admitting that they don't know and um, asking new and different questions and collaborating with people who think differently from them so they, they can figure stuff out. So you, you talk about play as one of the, uh, one of the things that can generate creativity and, and unleash that within, within people that you collaborate with. So what are some examples now that some organizations could use to stimulate that creativity using play, especially in the current state where we work from home and, and don't see our colleagues in person anymore? Well, one thing is to be a clumsy student of something. One thing is to truly encourage your colleagues to explore that, that human side of themselves and then to share it, right? And then to be curious about and sharing it. The, uh, I, I also like to say that we have to stop showing up to work in drag. We have to stop showing up to work and only revealing a certain slice of ourselves and our lives. Now that's a two-way street because it also requires people to be curious about us. Like, what did you really do over the weekend? Oh, what? how long have you been doing that? Oh, really? And maybe that reveals the capability that will be super important and helpful on a project that we're working on. Also, we spend so much of our time and days at work understanding that part of someone um, is really important. So um, incentivizing um, that people 
live out that playful side of themselves and then share it is one thing. Another is, um, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of, of a meeting is to um, introduce play. One thing that I, I've done in the past, I, I like to uh, pose one of the following questions, uh, a question such as, um, before we start this, get into the work of this meeting and this call, um, we're going to break out, like could be for two minutes, three minutes, you know, if you're on something like Zoom or Teams, you can go into a breakout groups of like two to three people max per breakout. And you ask people to just share what's the first thing you ever spent your own money on. And first of all, it takes us back to our younger selves, to that excitement we had because we had saved $8 or $4 or whatever it was. And what, what did you, or $50, whatever amount of money you were able to save as a kid. And what did you spend that money on? It's delightful. It evokes giggles. You get to know the person a bit better. By the way, one of the first things I ever spent my own money on was a Donna Summer cassette tape. I love Donna Summer and disco <laughs> music. And I would play that tape over and over and write down the lyrics and try to sing along. Um, and then a third thing to introduce play is to really encourage some playful lateral thinking. So lateral thinking is a term that we use a lot in design thinking. And it's about what can I learn from near and or far adjacent sectors to inform the way I do my work. So in non-pandemic times and when there's not a quarantine, it might look like the following where you incentivize, you encourage people on your team to go visit um, uh, an environment, a town, a, a, a play, a restaurant they typically wouldn't have gone to uh, that that feels like they're a tourist of some kind and what did they learn from that what could they what what, what did they learn that they think could be interesting maybe it's the way people ask questions that they learn maybe it's the way people um uh, showcase their work um the way it looks like in in quarantine times it's about you know now we can go to webinars or interesting talks if i'm in philadelphia which i am it, it's it's I could I could check out something that's being hosted in Johannesburg or in Tokyo. Um, what does that spark in me? Especially, it doesn't have to be serious, but but what what is that kind of playful exploration that we can then bring back to the work at hand? There's two things that happen when we do lateral thinking. Either we discover uh, that people have a very similar problem, and um, the way they handle it is looks very different from ours. And so what if we try that new way of handling that very similar problem? The second thing that could happen when we do lateral thinking is that we learn a totally different challenges and problems that we we never have to deal with that we um, they're just fascinated that that, you know, maybe I'm a fifth grade teacher and I start to tinker around in, in this field of oceanography, totally unrelated to what I do. But what can I learn? from the way that they do exploration that could inform the way I teach, for example. If I'm a leader, uh, if I lead a product development team at a tech firm and I check out something in the fashion realm and I don't consider myself fashionable and it's totally out of my, my range in my realm, what might I learn that is kind of playful and delightful that could inform the way my team works or the way we approach product development? So that, that's, that's, those are some examples of how to integrate play. 
That's a fantastic. And there's, there's so much to work with there. And I know the first part we already had discussed, it was getting out there and just trying something and, and essentially failing or not knowing the best way to do it, experiencing it in a very comfortable environment and then bringing it to work. And then there's also a number of other ways we can do that, which you just shared. So I think all of those are, are so insightful. And what we find over and over again is companies and people tend to just think that if we work each other hard, we will just get what our results, we'll get the outcome by doing that. But it's totally not the, not the case at all. More so if we step back, look in a different direction entirely, you might come back to that same lane that you're already in, in such a different way with a totally different mindset. And you might jump 10 steps further ahead than you ever were going to. So um, I, think, I think it's a great way of doing it. And I, I remember that the, one of the original reasons you even called um, your book Creativity Leap is because you have to leap you can't just take a step forward. You have to leap forward. You have to be ready to embrace that, if I understand that correctly. That's right. When the first, um, the first chapter of the creativity leap, I posed the question, what, is it, what does it mean to take a leap? What's required to leap? And the first thing is that you have to identify something that's, that you need, that you want. So you have to have some vision, right? You have to identify something in the not too far distance. It has to be visible to you, but it's not just within hand's reach. It's something that, you know, as you said, you can't just walk over to it, uh, but you have to you have to exert a certain amount of effort and energy to get to it. Um, and, you know, it's impossible to leap backward. You can only leap forward. So it's that, that forward projecting motion and visual that I think it's so important that to, for us to keep in mind uh, to keep the momentum going. Yeah, that, that stuck with me. I, whenever I think of describing something like a leap or, or moving forward, I decide if it, in my head if it's a step or if it's a leap and what that would actually mean. Um, so we, we've hit the, the quick fire questions part of the show. So three questions lined up and uh, Natalie will answer them in, uh, in the best way she can. And uh, so the first one is if you had the chance, what is the number one thing you tell your younger self on day one of their first job? several things be yourself it will all work out and continue to follow your heart number two what is the number one personality trait that you look for in future leaders curiosity and number three what is the most common error you see when working with organizations to unleash creativity uh um too big to fail We've always, we've always done it this way. It's a version of what I call superiority complex. It's very unfortunate. That one's interesting because it's exactly what, what it, the time I was doing consulting as well. That's exactly what I would see. And it, even just working within organizations, you can feel that mindset. It's so blocked. It blocks transformation. It directly is like, we're already good. Why do we need to do that other thing? It's like, you don't realize that this being good now does not mean that you're going to be good in the future. You have to, That's if, right. if you're not improving every single, or improving all the time, you're, you're essentially going backwards. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I, it is, I like the way you said that. It is an energy, it's an energy blocker. You can feel it. It's palpable. And it actually um, creates stagnation ultimately. Agreed. Agreed. 
So Natalie, thank you so much. I, you have been brought all your energy and your creativity to this. And I think it's fantastic. I want to just highlight to, to anyone who's listening that during this year in 2021, when I was thinking of how to create my own company, Strategio, going through all of the plans before I went and got my venture capital funding, everything that we've done to get to today. And even since we've been building the company like live and proactively, Natalie was one of the books that I read this year. Natalie's book, The Creativity Leap, was one of the ones I read. I haven't forgotten what I learned. And I'm just really, that's why it's so exciting for me to host you, because it's like you have directly had an impact on what I'm doing and you've stimulated something in me that I didn't really think I had. So I really appreciate that. That's amazing. Thank you so much for that feedback. That's high praise. I really, really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. And to anyone listening as well, you can check out all the links, whether it's Spotify or no, Apple Podcast or RSS, wherever you're listening, all of the links to the books, to Natalie's uh, you know, experience, LinkedIn and things like that will be available. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the DevOps Diversity Podcast. I've been your host, Connor Dellenbank, and today's episode was brought to you by Strategio.